Hello and welcome to Imagine Amazing, Oregon HFMA's podcast with its current president. Today, we will be meeting with a very special guest, Scott Purcell, president of Professional Credit Service, part of the Haas Group. Scott's also the elected president of ACA International, which is an elite trade group located in the United States, representing debt collection agencies, creditors, debt buyers, collection attorneys, and debt collection industry service providers. And as this is the President's Podcast, we are joined today by Oregon HFMA's 2020 through 2021 year chapter president, Tammy Kuhn, who will be providing us with important chapter updates and healthcare trends in Oregon, including preparation for and the impact of House Bill 3076 and the related spending floor amounts. As a reminder to our listeners, this podcast is available on all popular podcast platforms and is now viewable on Oregon HFMA's YouTube channel. To watch the podcast, pop some popcorn, go to the YouTube, type in Oregon HFMA Imagine Amazing, click on the desired episode, sit back and enjoy. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff Johnson. And I'm the other host, Kelly Smith. Today's episode of Imagine Amazing is sponsored and made possible by the Haas Group. When people think of the Haas Group, they think of integrity, innovation, and results. The Haas Group offers a full range of professional service companies, including KG Haas, Professional Credit, and Ensource. These companies provide special technology solutions, superior collection services, and remarkable early out support for healthcare organizations and other businesses. The Haas Group offers the full depth of expertise in developing strategic solutions that deliver unmatched results. To learn more, please visit www.haasfinancial.com. Thank you, Haas Group. And thank you, Tammy, for joining the podcast today. You've been doing an amazing job as president of Oregon HFMA during these very unique and challenging times, and we appreciate all that you're doing. Thank you. Very glad to be here. I've always enjoyed being a part of this podcast and having the opportunity to connect with our listeners and all of our wonderful Oregon HFMA members. This year has been interesting. I've been so impressed with the Oregon HFMA leaders and volunteers that have quickly adapted to all of the changes and who've continued to drive forth excellence in the Oregon HFMA chapter. Oh, we agree, Tammy. It has been absolutely incredible. Looks like we still have a lot of important things to do and talk about. So speaking of, we see you've invited a very special guest to this podcast. Will you please take a moment to do some introductions? Yes, I am very excited to introduce today Scott Purcell. I've had the privilege of working closely with Scott for many years. He's very intelligent, kind, insightful. Scott is a CPA who is currently president of Professional Credit and president of ACA International. Scott, thank you for joining us for this podcast. Can you share something fun and interesting about yourself? Because I know you do a lot of volunteering (laughs) that I think our listeners would love to hear about. Thanks, Tammy and Kelly and Jeff. It's an honor to be with you today. And indeed, probably the most fun part for me is I've been married to my best friend, Jill, for over 36 years, and we have four grown daughters that we're very proud of. I do a lot of philanthropy. I, I believe you should live your life now versus wait till retirement. So I like to go to Moldova, the poorest country uh, in Eastern Europe, actually all of Europe between Ukraine and Romania each year, except COVID year. Uh, and I do microfinance there and that's been very rewarding. Something uh, interesting is how my CPA background really serves me well in carrying out the various operational uh, roles and duties that I have. Thanks for asking. 
Thank you, Scott. You know, we are excited to have you on the show today. And, you know, some of uh, the members might be wondering why I invited the president of ACA and to our HFMA podcast, but there's more in common with these two associations and their missions than most people realize. Can you share with the listeners to what extent HFMA and ACA International are aligned and what the common goals and the opportunities for us to work together are? Absolutely, Tammy, that is a great question. And when you look at HFMA and you look at ACA International, both are focused on collaborating to treat patients fairly and respectfully. Both organizations are driven to provide top-notch education to our thousands of members, but also provide education to our legislators and our regulators. A great example of this, and I'm holding it up here for those of you that might just be listening, but it just came out recently. It is a joint project between HFMA and ACA, best practices for resolution of medical accounts. And I got to play uh, a special role in reviewing this document and so glad to see it published. We did one uh, several years ago that I think really helped with the onset of 501R. And this one has even more valuable information. So for those of you that don't have it yet, would urge you to get it uh, off the HFMA website. What I like in the very back is Appendix 4, which actually has sample consent to contact language that a provider could put in their in intake contract. And this is super important on a number of different fronts. One, professional credit also has some recommended language, and we'd love to share that uh, with anyone who would like to know. Uh, we added in some information about if the guarantor's contact information changes in the future, and we get a new email or phone number for them, say from a data vendor, that we're also able to use those numbers to contact them. Because as you know, people do change their email addresses and their phone numbers from time to time. So it's nice to have that language in there. We also have a provision that makes sure those guarantors understand that the communication could cause uh, them to incur a charge with their carrier. And also uh, that information might not be encrypted. We think this language shows a lot of respect to guarantors by making it really clear at the beginning of our financial relationship, how it's gonna operate. And while I'm not giving legal advice, I will say the courts like this as well. In the Reyes versus Lincoln case, the court upheld that language like this is actually part of the bargained for element of the contract. And as such, those decisions can't be rescinded. Just everybody at the beginning of this relationship understands this is how we all agree to communicate. I also know both HFMA and ACA are looking how to increase both the effectiveness and the efficiency in the revenue cycle. Digital communications play a really important role in accomplishing both. Digital communication is extremely important to engage guarantors faster and with greater convenience. Now, professional credit has an in-house behavioral scientist and I love behavioral science and it's a lot of fun. Uh, he recently studied over a million transactions, so a really large sample size of our own data with the providers that we serve. And he found that those guarantors that use electronic means of communications pay 30 days faster than those that use snail mail, 30 days faster. Just think about how that could impact your days in AR. On top of that, they paid 10% more. We recovered 10% higher balances from those 
guarantors that are using the electronic methods than those that aren't. And I think that's significant. I think it's important in the revenue cycle to make that connection with leadership. Now more than ever, it's important to remember with COVID that people are adopting higher rates of using digital channels during the pandemic. We're also expecting a boost when the CFPB, and it should be any day now, issues their updated debt collection rules, which should provide greater guidelines for how collection agencies can use those channels in communicating with guarantors. Now we know uh, the pandemic has had an impact uh, on the revenue cycle and the healthcare providers overall. A recent study by Kaufman Hall illustrates some of the concerns shared by financial leaders at many healthcare organizations. This is actually quite shocking and it's uh, literally hot off the press. Nearly three quarters of hospital leaders surveyed are either moderately 52% or extremely 22% concerned about the financial viability of the organization. Uh, as a society, as a community, we all need to be concerned about that because nobody wins if that provider goes out of business. One third of the respondents saw their operating margin decline in excess of 100%, comparing Q2 of 2020 to Q2 of 2019. Almost half have seen increases in bad debt and uncompensated care. So those are growing. They're seeing an increase in the percentage of Medicaid patients, which means a lower percentage of those that are commercially in insured. So you've got margin compression occurring from that uh, specific item as well. Basically, you've got a higher percentage of self-paid and uninsured patients. And then ultimately that comes back to the agency in terms of helping collect those dollars to increase the chance of that financial viability for the provider. All, all of those ways, ACA and HFMA are very much in lockstep trying to accomplish similar goals in serving the members so they can do their, their jobs at an even higher level. Uh, Scott, honestly, truly fascinating. I didn't know the level that both of those two entities were involved. So thank you so much for explaining that. And I love that you also touched on just how important the digital engagement is for the patient nowadays. Uh, so with that, just focusing a little bit on that question, are there any other data elements that you feel are really impactful or important for this um, patient financial engagement? Jeff, that's a really good question. We got some interesting insights from that recent study that I, I just mentioned as well. Definitely having uh, complete and thorough, accurate data is important throughout the revenue cycle. And I think uh, everyone listening or, or watching this uh, would agree. And there are steps providers can take to ensure they capture as much information as possible to achieve those better outcomes and increase the quality of that guarantor experience. And I think this point gets missed too often. The level of inconvenience, if you will, of ensuring we get the right information from the guarantor at the beginning is really minuscule compared to the inconvenience that guarantor and the provider's reputation could uh, decline if they get a surprise bill and not the kind of surprise bill that's always in the news, but just one that's late because of the inability to contact them. And so there really is value in ensuring that data is there and that it's accurate so that that communication can happen and it can happen timely. And that's part of being in service to those uh, guarantors as well. 
Now to understand just how much of an impact those data elements have, our data science team conducted a marginal effect analysis that measured the increase in recovery, the increase in recovery that we could get by adding just one variable to an account, such as a phone number or an email address at the time uh, that we get the account from the provider. And we see in healthcare that if we're provided a good address, a good phone, and either a social security number or a date of birth, all of the time a referral, we can collect anywhere from 13 to 18 percentage points better on those accounts than if we don't have that data. And if we get an email address from the healthcare provider, you can tack on an additional three or 4% uh, of, re of recovery more. So once again, how do we get those days and AR down? Getting those email addresses up front is really quite powerful. And it's good that everyone in the system understands what's at stake by getting uh, that information to not only create a better recovery, but to create a better experience for that guarantor. So Scott, you mentioned this marginal effect analysis that your team has done. Would that be available for anyone listening who would want to take a look at that? For we, you'll find with professional credit in the Haas group, we're very open and we really want to see the water level rise to help all boats float at an even more effective level. So regardless of whether you're a client or not, uh, give us a call. We enjoy sharing those insights because we do want to see the whole healthcare community do better by being equipped with that data. If someone wanted to reach out after listening to this podcast or, or seeing it on YouTube, how would they get a hold of you if they had some questions? Could you, are you willing to share your contact information with our listeners? Indeed, it's spurcell at professionalcredit.com, S-P-U-R-C-E-L-L at professionalcredit.com. Awesome. Thanks for that, because I think there might be some people interested in taking a look at that. We enjoy talking about those things. Thanks for asking, Jeff. I think you might have some takers on that, Scott. Thanks so much for your willingness to share. So really interesting information that you've just given us. I want to switch gears just a little bit. I'm curious to hear from your role as president of professional credit and president of ACA, what have you learned are other best practices from both healthcare providers and their collection partners that would help us overcome revenue cycle challenges we're facing given our resource constraints and economic hardships many are enduring right now? Thanks, Kelly. And I do get a lot of valuable insight in my various roles and uh, I enjoy learning. So I've enjoyed that part of, uh, of my role also. Here are some best practices for healthcare providers that I think are probably most relevant in the, the time we're in today. One is speech analytics, really helping ensure the quality and compliance of that remotely deployed call center uh, is occurring as you want it to. And that could be true uh, as you monitor a, a vendor like an agency or for your own internal staff. I think another one is settlement offers. And I've got a couple comments about this. Many people use that last round of stimulus to pay off debt. And I think there most likely will be another round of stimulus at some point, just because of how long the pandemic is going on and where the unemployment rate is. You know what, tax season's right around the corner as well. And paying off debt with tax refunds is only second 
to adding that money to the savings account, according to surveys that we see each year. The issue is medical debt doesn't usually have the same priority as say credit card debt, because often there are limits around credit reporting or charging interest or taking other extraordinary collection actions. And I know every provider has to give a lot of thought to what those policies are. But at the end of the day, uh, particularly where, the, where those things aren't in play, that medical debt typically is prioritized at a lower level than items that do have those other consequences. And so that's why I think offering a settlement could actually influence that guarantor putting a higher priority on getting that medical bill paid. I think giving patients who have lost their job or suffered other economic hardships or illnesses, uh, giving them a chance to get back on their feet. And in many cases, that financial recovery takes a lot longer than the physical recovery. Now I'm holding up uh, a book. It's uh, Nudge by Dr. Richard Thaler. He won the Nobel Prize in 2017 in economics and then holding up another book called Misbehaving, which is a lot of fun and isn't that a fun title. He actually, as a young economist, wanted to disprove why so many other economists uh, were wrong in their predictions. And so he discovered a lot of cognitive biases that had not been uh, written about. So for those of you that like to read, I think you'd get a lot out of both those books and you could apply it in the revenue cycle uh, pretty readily. We also saw, going back to the Great Recession, that while collections were lower during that time, they actually came right back when the economy got better. And I think that's an important point to remember. Often providers are tempted to write off those balances or cancel those accounts from the agencies too quickly. Whereas if you just waited a little bit longer and you monitored those accounts for changes in the guarantor's financial situation, as we do with our robust monitoring tool, you can then connect with them when they have an ability to pay. It also allows you and us to avoid contacting them when they don't have the ability to pay because that can become annoying and it's not fruitful. And so it not only improves recovery, but it also improves the relationship with the guarantor. There's also been a trend to cancel accounts sooner, partially due to CMS guidelines on Medicare bad debt and how that reimbursement gets made. And there's been a lot of confusion in that area. I'm really grateful for the CMS proposed rules that came out in May of this year that cleared a lot of that up. And they also made it clear uh, it's not new rules. They are refining the existing rules, which I think is good for uh, the healthcare providers as well. And while I'm not offering legal advice here as well, I am encouraged by the draft war rule and uh, the really good reading starts on page 644. Uh, and goes through 651. So in case you want to cut to the chase and save yourself a little time, page 644 is where this part starts. But having similar collection treatments on the Medicare accounts and the non-Medicare accounts, that's been a debate for a long time. And really CMS summarized it, as long as you're treating them similar up to the point that those Medicare accounts are deemed worthless, that's really how people are going to meet the rule. And then you can still do additional collection activities on those non-Medicare accounts, like sending them to a secondary collection agency or using a settlement campaign. Once again, you're going to have to check with in-house counsel, but it sure appears with the refinement of those rules 
that now is the right time to take a hard look at what the provider's policies are in that area, because I do think there's some additional liquidation that can come from those non-Medicare accounts. Thank you, Scott. My goodness, that's a lot of information. Very powerful and very timely information as well. So thank you for sharing that with our listeners and with us today. Um, we truly appreciate you taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to join us on this podcast. And this is why Tammy chose you. This is just fantastic information. But I do have a question that might seem a little controversial out there with many, and but we hear it quite often. So I thought since we had the president of ACA, we should ask the question, and it is the following. Um, it seems that there are a lot of, there's a big push both politically and, and personally maybe for some people to stop any type of collection or recovery on a healthcare account. So what are your thoughts on that and what do you see as the pros and cons to this type of action? Well, Jeff, since we're a week away from a pretty big election, I think now is a, a great time for controversial uh, questions. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's a, a really important one because so much has happened this year politically uh, and the rhetoric, rhetoric gets uh, really high in, in this area. And I think about it uh, and spend a lot of time and energy on this very topic. Some of my favorite faith-based uh, provider clients have a really healthy perspective on this question and have for a long, long time. If we don't collect from guarantors who can pay, but don't wanna pay, so if we don't collect from that group who can pay, but don't wanna pay, then ultimately we're gonna to have to raise prices for the rest of the middle class that we're serving. And that's morally wrong in their eyes. And I agree with them. In the second version of the HEROES Act that passed the House, but not the Senate, there actually was a rule to limit debt collection during the pandemic, but also for two years after it ended. And that's a very well-intended idea, but one that would most definitely hurt the very people that they're trying to protect. The debt collection industry returned over $90 billion to its clients, many of them healthcare providers in 2018. That equates to about $706 of savings for every American family, yours and mine included, uh, in that 2018 timeframe. And that's a meaningful number. Not only would prices go up, but access to credit would go down. A study by Professor Todd Zwicky in 2015, one of my favorite people in the world, he actually proved that access to capital goes down, especially for the materially poor, and interest rates go up, sometimes dramatically, also affecting the materially poor, when the collection of bad debt is thwarted. Of all the congressional offices that I've spoken to who originally supported that ban on collections, everyone has said this to me. This is valuable insight and no one else is talking about it. And we will be at the table when it gets debated again. So the point is don't be defeated, don't give up. But also hear me, if we don't go and tell that story to our legislators, no one else will. And some of these very well intended, but really bad ideas can become a law. And then we have a real problem to contend with. I want to throw out, I was really proud of what happened uh, last year in the state of Washington. There was a consumer group that wanted to take the post-judgment interest rate on medical debt to 0%. Existing Washington law was 12%. And the debt collectors 
and the consumer groups and the healthcare providers all got together at the table. And at the end of the day, the negotiated change was 9%, not 0%, not 12%. But even the consumer groups conceded having healthy, financially, financially viable providers, that is a benefit to the community and it's gotta get paid for somehow. And so when we come together in community and actually put the facts on the table and talk back and forth and treat each other with respect, we can come up with really good solutions. But if we're silent, there's some really bad ideas that we'll get through and then we all suffer the consequences. Scott, thank you for all your insight. You know, one thing I really kind of heard loud and clear today that I think is important to recognize is for the most part, I think guarantors want to pay their balances. They want to pay their medical bills, but we have to be strategic in how we identify who's able, who's eligible and be a little bit patient about our timelines for when does it make the most sense and what, when will it have the biggest return? And so you've really given me some different ways to think about this today that I appreciate very much. So it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and we hope that you'll be willing to join us again on a future podcast. Indeed, this has been a lot of fun for me as well. And thanks for what you guys are doing, working so hard to make sure Oregon HFMA members have valuable information that they can make those little changes and what they do to get a much better outcome for the providers and the way they serve the community. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. thank you, Scott, for joining us. Uh, great information. Yeah, truly remarkable. It has been a blast. I do have a quick question for Tammy. Uh, we hear, and there's something trending out there with House Bill 3076 for Oregon, that there are a new related spending floor amounts. Can you tell our members and listeners a little bit more about the House Bill itself and what they should expect? Certainly. Um, so House Bill 3076 introduced significant changes to the healthcare community benefits policy. So the bill created new standards for financial assistance to patients, limited the, debt, the medical debt collection and interest, and instituted new data reporting requirements and introduced a new community benefit minimum spending floor program. So under the uh, spending floor program, the Oregon Health Authority must every two years set a minimum amount each hospital must spend on the community benefits. The legislator directed the OHA to develop a methodology for determining what that spending floor in, in consultation with hospitals, healthcare economists, and the general public. Wow, that, that is significant. Definitely a lot of information, Tammy. What should our Oregon nonprofit healthcare systems expect in regards to the community benefit minimum spending floor? Great question, Kelly. So I was in a meeting um, where recently for the Oregon chapter and where the OHA shared some very insightful information on setting the minimum spending floor and what includes the following. So they looked at historical and current community benefit expenditures by the hospital and the hospital's affiliated clinics. It looked at demographics of the population served, uh, spending on social determinants of the health of the hospital and the affiliated clinics, identified community needs, and then the hospitals needed to expand the healthcare workforce and then the overall financial position of the hospital and the affiliated clinics based on the audited financial statements, taxes paid to federal and state and, and local municipals. So 
it's important to note that the hospitals in a robust financial health will have the spending floor adjusted upward, even if they're already making a strong community benefit investment. And hospitals that are financially struggling will have their spending floor adjusted downward. So they came up with a way to figure out what that methodology is going to be. And it's every two years. And I think that's a big change right now. This will be interesting. I also found it very interesting that if, again, like you were saying, if they're doing extremely well and, and donating all this money and they may be asked to even give more if they are financially healthy. So it'll be interesting how this turns out. Can you describe to the healthcare systems who are listening a little bit more about how that individual community benefit spending floor is going to work or where they can go to learn a little bit more about that? Yeah, for more information, you can go online at the www.oregon.gov slash OHA. And all of that information is right there. It's valuable information. And again, um, the Oregon chapter did just have a session on that. And it is on our YouTube channel as well, if you want to go look at it there as well. Great information. Great. So, Tammy, that was www.oregon.gov forward slash OHA. Sounds very easy to get to. So thank yes. you. Well, it's really been amazing to look back and see all of the education, the networking, problem solving that the chapter's done. What a remarkable year for 2020 for this chapter and for our members too. So excellent job taking advantage of a different opportunity for our members to continue to give them that education. So do you have anything else you'd like to share with listeners and members about what will be happening in the chapter as we move into the end of the year and beginning of 2021? I would love to share what's going to be going on. So every month uh, we are partnering with other chapters to provide educational webinars. Um, in November's webinar is going to be hosted by our fellow chapter, Washington, Alaska chapter. And it's going to be the future of health providers starts with digitally empowered revenue cycle. So very similar to what we're just talking about, going to be very full of information. And every month there's going to be a different webinar. In addition, Oregon is going to host this very own Oregon-related topic. Um, we don't have what that's going to focus on yet, so stay tuned on that. And watch your emails for all of the other upcoming topics for the chapter's hosting. 2021 is going to be exciting, and it's going to be different. Uh, generally, the chapter usually hosts four on-site conferences a year. Uh, this year, we will be hosting three um, in a normal year. So because we do not know what 2021 is going to start out with, we will open up the year with a one-day virtual conference in January, and then we'll follow it with another one-day conference in March. We hope to reunite in person for Silas Shan, our conference. Um, so hopefully we can all be in person uh, for that conference. Um, if not, we will continue uh, going virtual. And then this year, we're going to have our very first enterprise-only conference, which is going to be for really attuned to our enterprise members. We have done road shows with them, but we're going to bring a conference and have them actually attend an in-person conference. So, and that we hope to be right around July. So a lot of new fun things, new different things. And as always, all of our events are on our website at OregonHFMA.org. Truly remarkable. Yeah. 
Um, thank you so much. I, I think it's really exciting to be a member of Oregon HFMA because I'm getting so much back. Talking about getting more back, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what they can expect in the next podcast? Well, it's going to be exciting. I can't say for sure, but we're hoping to have a special guest who can give us a little bit more insights from the OHA, uh, uh, basically updates on the healthcare after the election. So what's changed and what do we have to look forward to? So stay tuned for more information uh, on that new podcast coming out. That's a good little teaser, Tammy. I can't wait. So for Tammy and Scott, thank you for joining us today on this episode of Imagine Amazing. You were incredible. Thank you, Kelly and Jeff. And I love with our members to provide valuable updates and important information um, from our guest speakers, such as Scott Purcell. So Scott, valuable information to share with the members. Thank you for being on the podcast. I know they're really going to enjoy this. Take care. And a reminder for our listeners, this episode of Imagine Amazing is brought to you today by the Haas Group. To learn more, please visit www.haasfinancial.com. Thank you, Haas Group. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and all other popular podcast platforms, as well as YouTube. Please find us, like us, and follow us for exciting new content in 2020 through 2021. Also, to learn more about or to join Oregon HFMA, please visit us at www.oregonhfma.org.